Our scripture reading comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to read uh, verses 9 to 21. There's lots of bizarre names in this, so I didn't want to have to ask anybody else to read it. I figured I'd take this one. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve oxen, twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is God's word. Father, we just pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth this morning uh, would be pleasing to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, there was a story on uh, NPR, I think it was both a, a written story and a, a story on the radio, uh, that was called, After Going for Gold, Athletes Can Feel the Post-Olympic Blues. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I watched a lot of the Olympics. I enjoyed watching the Olympics, and it was one of the fun things to do. But I'd never thought about what the article talked about, and that was that after the Olympics, many athletes really struggle with a severe sense of depression. After all, they've, they've been in the, the global spotlight. The whole world has been watching them. And then, within just a couple weeks, the whole world moves on until another four years later. 
The article talked about uh, Michael Phelps and some of his struggles that happened after the uh, London Olympics. It talked about uh, Allison Schmidt, who bizarrely enough taught my own son how to swim uh, and how she struggled with severe depression after the Olympics and has now become an advocate uh, for mental health because it was such a severe problem for her. But the article went on and said this. It said, Consider that these athletes have spent years, maybe decades, building to the all-consuming goal of making it to the Olympics. And now it's over. All of the buildup, the hype, the media attention, the extreme adrenaline rush of competition have come crashing to a halt. You work so hard, you put everything into it, and for some athletes, their performance is over in a matter of seconds, literally. And then it's done, and now what? Just imagine how much, challenge, how much of a challenge that must be for athletes after the Olympics. If you are with us last week, you'll know that we talked about a, a very climactic event that happened in the life of Elijah, who was one of the most significant prophets in all of the Old Testament. And we saw how his whole life and his whole, whole career were building towards a climax and, and how that climax happened on top of Mount Carmel in front of the whole nation for everyone to see. On one side were the, the prophets of Baal, the, the false gods of all the nations that surrounded Israel, whom Israel themselves had begun to worship. And on the other side stood Elijah all by himself. And if you remember, he called down fire from heaven and, and it miraculously and powerfully came down and consumed the entire sacrifice. And what it did is it demonstrated powerfully and visibly for the entire nation the very power of God. And Elijah, he himself must have, have felt vindicated before the eyes of the nation and God was, was glorified for everyone to see. But now what happens afterwards? Now what happens? What happens now after this huge climactic event? You see, Elijah must have thought that, that now things are about to change. Things are now finally going to be different. The victory has been won, and now I can bask in the glory of it. But the glory didn't last. In fact, it, it faded rather quickly, and tragically, things didn't change really at all for God's people. Rather than scoring an incredible victory, Elijah realized instead he has just managed to stick his hand in the hornet's nest. He has taken a stick and poked the sleeping bear. Things have gotten worse for him. In the end of the original Star Wars movie, maybe you've seen it before, the Death Star is destroyed and, and the victory has been won. But what was the movie that came right after that? The Empire Strikes Back. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, we see that the empire begins to strike, strike back. You see, Ahab the king and Jezebel his wife are furious at Elijah for how he has humiliated them. Jezebel, in a, in a fit of rage, swears that she is going to stake her life on killing Elijah. Her whole existence is going to be focused on killing him. And she musters the entire army and all their force together so that they can hunt down Elijah and kill him. So Elijah, a man who was once full of incredible faith, 
is now full of incredible fear, and he runs for his life. You see, our passage this morning shows us something that uh, is significant about not just the faith of Elijah, but also the character of God. And I think in the process, as we look at it, we see how God responds to people who have imperfect faith. But the first thing we see is, 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 is an, a window or an insight into the faith of Elijah. You see, Elijah learns that Jezebel is after him, so he runs. He runs into the wilderness. And this is reminiscent of, of so many characters all throughout the scriptures that ran into wilderness, the wilderness at some point in their lives. Moses, Jonah, David, Elijah, even Jesus Christ himself spent some time in the wilderness. Well, Elijah runs for an entire day, and then he sits in the desert, in the wilderness, underneath a broom tree. And when he arrives there, he settles in and he prays, and he asks God if he could die. He didn't want his calling of prophet anymore. He didn't want any more of the frustration and the opposition that came from his position. All he wanted to do in that moment was die. He was despondent. He was discouraged. He was defeated. He was depressed. And he just wanted all of it to end right there in that moment. The passage tells us that God put him to sleep. He slept and then he woke up, he ate something, and then he slept again. He slept as one who was overcome with an incredible sense of sorrow. And then God wakes him up and sends him on another journey. God tells him he wants to travel another 40 days to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai. This was the same mountain, if you remember, in the book of Exodus that God, that God sent Moses up when he received the Ten Commandments. And Once Elijah arrives at this mountain, God comes to him and asks him. He says, Elijah, why are you here? Why are you here on this mountain? Now, Elijah's had 40 days to really think about this. He's had 40 days to think about his depression. And over those 40 days, his depression had actually turned into anger, a severe anger. He was angry at God for everything, and he wasn't afraid to tell God just how angry he was. And in this exchange between Elijah and God, we see the imperfect faith of Elijah is unmasked for all of us who are reading this to see. See, up until this point, we've only seen the outward acts of Elijah. We've seen the miracles he's performed. We've seen his incredible compassion. We've seen his incredible faith in all sorts of different scenarios. And in fact, if you read all of the scriptures, Elijah is held up as this incredible figure of faith. The Gospels talked about him as a hero of the faith. The book of James says that we're supposed to emulate the faith of Elijah. But in this passage, we get a window into the real heart and character of Elijah. And when we do, we see a man who wrestled profoundly with depression and fear 
and ultimately anger at God. I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing this message, and uh, I had lunch with a friend this week, a, a, a friend who is also a pastor, and uh, we had a nice lunch together just talking about what it's like to work in churches and things like that. And uh, at the very end, he said, I have to ask you something before you leave. And I said, okay, shoot, what, what do you want to ask me? He said, I, I want to know how you do it. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, I know how busy you are with all the different things that you do in life and uh, how crazy your life must be. He said, but at the end of the day, you just always seem so joyful. And you take it in stride and you just seem to have everything under control and everything so wonderful. And I can remember sitting there hearing him say that and thinking, man, I've really fooled this guy. <laughs> in fact, I went back and I, and I told my wife uh, what he'd said and, and how funny I thought it was. And, and she looked at me and she said, well, I guess you're good at faking it until you make it, right? Because she understand what it was like too. But it reminded me that often our external masks or the persona that we put out there betrays what often is going on in our hearts. Because if we're honest and we really look at our hearts, we would have to come to terms with the fact that we are just as messy as Elijah was in this story. Our faith is imperfect, and we certainly don't have it all together. As I reflected on this passage this week, I kept wondering and thinking about what was it that sent Elijah in such a downward spiral? What put him in such a dark place in his life? And I wondered, was it, was it just simply burnout? Had he just done too much for, for too long and he was just physically and emotionally spent with it all? And, and really all he needed was a nice long vacation and then everything would go back to normal. And I do think this was a big part of what was going on in Elijah's emotional state. But I actually think there was something deeper happening here with Elijah as well. Because I think he was actually dealing not just with being tired and burnt out. I think he was actually dealing with failed expectations. It says this in verse 10, Elijah said this to God. He said, I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. In fact, if you look at verse 14, he says the exact same gripe word for word to God. He is frustrated. You see, what I think is going on here is I think that after this climactic event at Mount Carmel, Elijah thought that the whole nation had now seen the glory of God. And as a result, all of them were going to repent of all of their wickedness. They were going to drive out evil Ahab and they were going to drive out Jezebel. They would finally start listening to Elijah and return to God. He could either quit his job or retire into some posh little couple hours a week of being a prophet. You see, he thought heaven was about to be established on earth and none of it happened. Virtually nothing changed. Life went back to status quo. It actually even got worse for Elijah. The empire was striking back. The gold medal was won and nobody at the end of the day cared about it. 
You see, I think initially Elijah was depressed about it when he sat underneath that tree. But after that 40-day journey, his, his depression turned into all sorts of anger and bitterness towards God. So that when he met God on the mountain, he just wants to give God a piece of his mind. He is so angry. Now, friends, maybe not to Elijah's extent, but I think we all know what it is like to wrestle with expectations in life. If you know me, you know I spend a lot of time uh, hanging out with college students, both uh, teaching uh, and coaching as well. And one of my favorite things to do with college students is to ask them uh, what their dreams are for their life. What are they going to do after they graduate? And often I'll say, uh, fast forward your life 10 years. Where do you hope uh, you're going to be in 10 years of your life? And they all tend to be wonderful students. I'm sure they're going to accomplish all their goals. But I want you to think for a moment. Take, Take a moment and just think back to your college self. Okay? Think back to your college self. What did your college self think that you'd be doing with your life right now? Are you exactly where you predicted yourself to be or where you dreamed yourself to be? Have you reached the goals, not getting on board with all of the wonderful plans that you had for your life? And because of that, maybe even your faith suffers. Maybe when you look inside your heart, you see that it is messy. You see, Elijah didn't worship Baal like all the other people in his, in his nation did, but he wasn't worshiping God either. He was worshiping his expectations and his dreams. And maybe if you're like me, your heart finds itself tending in that direction as well. One moment you feel grateful towards God and full of faith, and the next you're furious at him. Maybe your faith is imperfect just like Elijah's. Maybe your faith is more like a never-ending wrestling match than it is some sort of settled victory. And if that's you, then I think there is such beauty and comfort in this passage Because not only does it picture a man of imperfect faith, but it also pictures for us beautifully how God responds to imperfect faith. It gives us a picture into the gracious character of God. You see, when Elijah was up on that mountain, the passage tells us that he hid himself inside of a cave. Some people think this was the same cave or, or cleft that, that Moses hid himself in when the presence of God came across Mount Sinai. And the passage says in verse 11, And he, God, said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke it in pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind." And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. You see, when the nation of Israel would read this story, they would immediately think about the giving of the law. They would think about Moses on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. They would think about God's covenant with them that was reaffirmed on that mountain. They would think of God in all of his might and power. They would think of his transcendence and his glory and that, that, that this glory would at times lead them to fear and most certainly to 
reverence and awe and respect. But what the passage tells us is that the Lord was not in all of these things. Parenthetically, I think often this is the way that we expect God to respond when we come to him with messy and imperfect faith. When we come to him with our bitterness and anger, when we come to him as spoiled and petulant children, we expect him to respond in his might and in his judgment and in his wrath. And because we believe that God will act this way, we try to clean ourselves up before we come to him. But ultimately, this is just hiding behind a mask that God sees very clearly through. Instead, we see Elijah who stood before God naked and stripped bared in all of his messiness and in all of his anger and in all of his imperfection. And so what God does is he meets him in a whisper. Verse 12, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. You see, the might and the power and the transcendence and the glory of God didn't bring Elijah outside of, of the cave. But an intimate whisper from God spoke to Elijah's heart. God spoke tenderly to the fractured soul of Elijah. And when he did, when God spoke tenderly to Elijah, he gave him the next steps. He he gave him relief, reminding him that he wasn't alone. He provided Elisha, who would be the next prophet, to supply needed relief for the weary soul of the prophet. He came to Elijah not in judgment and wrath for his imperfect and faltering faith. He came to Elijah in an intimate whisper of grace. Grace in the form of a whisper. Friends, what the gospel tells us is that God desires to show you and I the same intimate grace. Of course, God doesn't brush aside our messiness in our sin. Those things need to be taken care of. Our debts need to be paid. God must come in wrath and strength and power in order to judge sin. But instead of pouring all that wrath on us, instead he pours it on his very own son. You see, Jesus suffered the wind. He suffered the earthquake. He suffered the fire of God's wrath so that God could come and speak intimate grace into our mess. And the gospel tells us that by faith in Jesus Christ, our debt can be paid. Our sin, our messiness, our imperfect attempts at faith can be covered and atoned for. By faith in the gospel, we need not fear the storm of God's wrath. Instead, we can hear the whisper of God's intimate grace in our souls. And when we do, our souls can be restored. So have you heard the whisper? Have you laid your true soul before God the Father? Have you, by faith, clung to Christ's sacrifice for you, because when you do, you experience, just like Elijah, the restoration of your soul. Let's pray.